The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Inside the church. And so we're going to look at today what I believe the scripture suggests as the form of church government we are supposed to have as a body. If you would please open up to Exodus chapter 18. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 27. It's page 60 in the Red Bible, and I believe it's page 117 in the Children's Bible. Last week, you may have remembered, if you were here, that Chris opened up to us the first part of Exodus chapter 18, showing this reunion between Moses and his father-in-law Jethro at Mount Sinai. When they got together, Moses gave a testimony of all that the Lord God had done. How God had brought plagues upon Egypt, brought them out of Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea, crushed the Egyptians under the Red Sea. How he had turned bitter water into sweet water. How he had provided manna and quail in the wilderness. How God had brought water out of a rock and how God even brought victory to the Israelites over the Amalekites. And after this great testimony of all that God had done, Moses' father Jethro, father-in-law Jethro, responds with this amazing statement of faith. He said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. And then he says, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Jethro goes on in an act of worship, offers sacrifice to the Lord and joins with the leaders of Israel in a meal. Now, all this happened at Mount Zion, the mountain of God. This reunion happened. The sun sets. They fall asleep. They wake up the next morning. And that's where we pick up today's story. And if you remember, the last time we were at Mount Zion with Moses, he was a shepherd of sheep. But now he's the shepherd of a nation. And so Jethro gives him advice on how to lead those people. And that's what we're going to read today. Exodus 18, verse 13 through 27. Exodus 18, verse 13. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. And I make them known the statutes of God and his law. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. For the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them known the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men. From all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. 
If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure. And all the people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people. Chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Let's pray. Lord, as we approach your word this morning, this is a passage that I confess I would probably quickly read over and just say it's logistics. And it's not that important. But we know that all scripture is breathed out by you, Lord. And it's useful for our teaching. And so God, pray that you would, have, that you would teach us this morning, that you would give us humble hearts to learn and to be molded and to grow and to even inspect this important thing of spiritual leadership. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I realize that spiritual leadership and church government may not be a sermon you were excited to hear this morning, but it is something that is vital to our church, both individually, but as a whole. And so from this passage and various New Testament passages, I want to investigate how God orders us to order the church, to structure the church, to govern the church. According to Theopedia.com, and yes, there is a website, Theopedia.com, there are three major forms of church government. And so I'm going to walk through those very quickly with you. And I'm trying to make them simple, so I already want to confess that they're probably overly simplistic. But here are the three forms of church government that exist. First is Episcopal. In the Episcopal church, authority is above the local church. The authority comes from the bishop or the pope or whoever it might be that is above the local church. The local church has very little authority to appoint their own pastor or priest or to make major decisions in terms of location and things of that sort. Power rests in the higher ups. Denominations with this church government include the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, the Methodist Church, and some Lutheran churches. And so that is the Episcopal Church, where authority is above the local church. Then there is the congregational form of government, which means authority is in the local church. The authority is in the local church completely. Now, In these local churches, sometimes different people or different groups have that authority. In some churches, it is the elders that have the authority and they have it equally. Sometimes it is the congregation who votes on just about everything. More times than not, the pastor has the authority. He's kind of seen as the football coach and everybody supports what he says. The elders do, the deacons do, the people do, and they just cheer him on and support his vision. These These congregational churches, uh, there is no authority over them. Uh, They may be a part of associations or synods or conferences, but it's merely an affiliation. There's no actual authority over the local church. And this form of government belongs to Baptist, non-denominational, as well as Pentecostal churches. The third form of government is Presbyterian, where it has authority both in and above the local church. 
The word Presbyterian comes from the word presbyteros, which means elder in Greek. And it is a system set up with lots of checks and balances. The negative to this is that it cuts down on efficiency many times, but nobody has absolute authority. The congregation nominates and elects elders and deacons to run the church, and the elders do so at the guidance of the people. Above the elders at the local level, there is something that we call the presbytery, which is the state of Wisconsin. And so the way that it works is the state of Wisconsin uh, keeps the elders accountable. And so if you, as a member of Jacob's Well, see the elders of Jacob's Well doing something that's not right, and you go to them and you approach them and you say, hey, I'm not sure about this. This doesn't look right. And you end up on different pages. You have both the opportunity and the obligation to go to our presbytery above us. And warn them of what is going on. And even above the presbytery, then there is the general assembly, which decides on major issues um, on on whether uh, things like whether someone can be ordained that believes this or believes that and things of that sorts. So the Presbyterian form of government is a government where authority is spread throughout the local church and above the local church. It is typical in, of course, Presbyterian churches, but also Reformed churches. So that is the broad overview of the three major forms of church government. And I want to make sure that you hear me very clearly that in all of these forms of government, there are humble leaders that love the Lord, that love the word of God, that are seeking to lead according to their conscience. But the thing is, I'm not Episcopalian and I'm not congregational. I'm Presbyterian. And as we read the scripture, as I understand it, as I translate it, I think that it seems to press forward this thought of a church government where there's both authority in and above the local church. Not only that, I think it's the healthiest form of government because the local church has elders and pastors like me who are sinful and need help desperately. And need accountability. And so today, let's look at Exodus 18, as well as some New Testament passages. And there's really just two points I want to make this morning. The first is this, that church leadership should be diversified. And the second is that church leadership should be qualified. First, leadership should be diversified. What I mean by that is that all the authority should not remain on one person or be given to one group of people, but that the authority should be spread out amongst many people, amongst many groups. This indeed is Jethro's advice. If you look in verse 21 with me, Jethro says to Moses, moreover, moreover, he says, look for able men from all people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Jethro is simply saying, spread out the responsibility. Spread out the leadership. And there are two main reasons why he does this. The first reason is for sustainability. Not only sustainability, but also sanity of the leaders, but also of the people. If you look in verse 13, it says, The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. Now, I don't know if you've ever sat at the DMV to wait for like an hour or two, but things usually don't go well. People start to get frustrated. These people were waiting all day, 
And to a certain extent, justice delayed is justice denied. And so this is not good what's going on. And that's exactly what Jethro says. Verse 14, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I take them known I, and I make them known the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. And then he gives the explanation why in verse 18. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Moses was a man that loved God. Moses was a man that spoke with God. But Moses was not God. Moses was finite. He had limitations. He couldn't do it all himself or else he would have burnt out. Skip down to verse 22. We'll see more of the reason why, why Jethro is saying to spread out the leadership, to diversify. Verse 22, second half. Again, it says, so it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. You won't have to do it all alone. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure. You won't get worn out. And all the people also will go to their place in peace. They won't be angry. They won't walk away frustrated. It will go well with the people of God. Jethro's solution was to diversify the leadership, to handle the load. Phil Riken, who writes a commentary on Exodus, talks about what this would look like in other, other places of society. And he says this, an army general would recognize it as the old military strategy of divide and conquer. An economist would call it the division of labor. The Bible has a word for it too. It's called Presbyterianism. The spiritual rule of God's people by a representative group of godly men whom the Israelites called elders. Jethro was proposing a new form of leadership, a new form of government, but also a new form of spiritual care. These judges were to know the statutes of God, to know the laws of God, and to minister to the people of God that they might thrive. Now, we see this pattern continue in the New Testament. Paul goes to the different cities and he plants a church and he establishes a plurality of elders. And then he goes on to plant another one and another one and another one. And what we see is that the elders are not able to keep up with all the needs of the church. When we get to Acts chapter 6, we read that there's a complaint lodged against the church because the widows are being neglected in their daily distribution. And we read that the 12 disciples summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who, will, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The elders knew they did not have enough time or enough resources, both to hold the ministry of prayer, the ministry of the word, but also the ministry of mercy. And so they appointed deacons to do that within the congregation. Right now, we are training deacons to help out the elders to share the load that we might love 
the people in the church and outside the church well. And so one reason to diversify the leadership is for sustainability and insanity that the ministry might carry on and carry on well. But the second reason is for accountability. Moses had a massive blind spot. It was called workaholism. I know many of us struggle with that same thing. But Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, who was wise, came. God sent him to Moses. And he said, what you are doing is not good. What we have in this culture is a dangerous mentality that says, if you want it done right, you have to do it yourself. Right? I've thought that. I'm guessing you've thought that. If you want it done right, you have to do it yourself. But this passage tells us the exact opposite. That if church is to be done right, it should not be championed by just one person, but it should be spread out amongst people. Not only to bear the load, but also for the purpose of accountability. You know, I give Moses a lot of credit because as we read on in the passage in verse 24, It says, Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. You know, Moses could have said, Jethro, you're an old man. You don't know what you're talking about. Did you lift up your staff and part the Red Sea? I did. Did you strike the rock and water came out? You don't know what you're talking about. I got it handled. But Moses didn't. Moses, in humility, placed himself and accountability to his father-in-law. And he did what he said. You know, there is accountability strung throughout this new leadership structure in which the harder cases would be referred up to the next judge and the next judge and the next judge all the way up to Moses. It's very similar to our court system. You may go to court here and they might rule in a way that you believe to be corrupt. And so you can take it to the state Supreme Court and then eventually to the national Supreme Court. There is checks and balances throughout this system that is being put in to hold one another accountable. Again, we see this pattern translating over to the New Testament. In Acts chapter 15, it begins by telling us that there were some brothers that came to Paul and Barnabas. And they said that the, that the Gentiles which are non-Jews, the Gentiles needed to be circumcised to be faithful to God. Well, Paul and Barnabas got in this great argument with these other men saying, no, they don't need to be circumcised. Well, they, they weren't able to agree on the matter. And so we read what they did next. It says, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. They knew that if they couldn't see eye to eye, that they needed to appeal to an authority, to an assembly above them. It goes on in verse 6, and it says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and that there was much debate. Afterwards, they made the decision that circumcision was not necessary, and then they sent out Judas 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 and Silas to report to the churches their decisions. And so what we see in this is there's this tiered system of accountability where nobody has absolute authority, but there are checks and balances throughout. You know, I could share with you at least three stories of three different churches in Green Bay in which a pastor was confronted about an issue of how he was running the church. And as a result, the staff was fired. 
And the staff had no one to appeal to above the pastor because the pastor had the top authority. Contrastingly, I can also share with you the story of two other pastors who were fired. They were completely blindsided, had no idea that they were being let go. And they had no one above the local church to go to and say, listen, we're not seeing eye to eye. Things are not working out. There's this dispute. There's this disagreement. Can you come in and help us? Because they had no authority above themselves in order to help the decision making. You know, church government seems very, very boring. But it's so necessary when things fall apart. You know, as a church, we think we all have good intentions. And maybe we do. I doubt it. But everyone has good intentions. We all love Jesus. We're all going to get along. But that's not the way it works. Because all of us have blind spots. And all of us need people to point those out. John Darlberg once said famously, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Or Winston Churchill once said, democracy, I love this quote, democracy is the worst form of government except for all other forms. (laughs) Presbyterianism is the worst form of government, in my opinion, except all other forms. That's my opinion. Because we need accountability. You don't know how messed up I am. My wife has an idea. Chad has an idea. Tracy has an idea. I have so many sinful tendencies. I don't trust myself. There is only one good king. His name's Jesus. And the rest of us need accountability. And so that's why there is this authority structure in place. The diversity of leadership for sustainability, but also accountability. And so that's the first point, that leadership should be diversified. The second, I promise, is quicker. Leadership should be qualified. I know this seems like common sense, but we must be very careful who we put in leadership roles in the church, whether it be elder or deacon or even a small group leader. And so what we see here is that there needs to be qualities for people to lead qualities of competency and of character. First, we see competency qualities. Verse 19, Jethro says to Moses, Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them known the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Here Jethro is telling Moses to train the people of Israel, to teach them of the law of God, of the word of God, of the statutes of God, that they might raise up and be competent to judge those around them. He's teaching them to pass on his leadership, to duplicate his leadership. John Maxwell, who is famous for his thoughts on leadership, says a leader is not great because of his power, but because of his ability to empower others. And this is what Jethro is encouraging Moses to do, to teach that they might be able to rule wisely. It goes on, verse 21, says, moreover, look for able men from all the people. Able men, not just anybody, but people who actually have this gifting of leadership. You see, this isn't a sin issue. This is a gifting issue. Has God gifted these people to lead. 
In verse 22, it says, let them judge the people of all times. You may have already picked this up in our discussion of judges, but when we picture judges, we think of someone in a black robe with a gavel, right? That's what a judge is. But judges in the Old Testament, judges here as well as judges in the book of Judges, are much more than just someone who decides on legal cases. They are the shepherds of Israel most of the time. Not all the time, but most of the time, they are shepherds of Israel, spiritual leaders for Israel. And they're caring for the people of Israel. And so what might be more, uh, more, a more likely phrase for us to understand it is not judge, but elder. Someone who is to take care of the spiritual needs of the people of God. And so we see there are competency qualifications. Are they gifted to do the job? Are they learned to do the job? But there's also character qualifications. Verse 21, we see three character qualifications. Men who fear God, men who are trustworthy, and men who hate a bribe. These are three very important character qualifications. So I just quickly want to look at them. First, men who fear God. This addresses a man's relationship with God. Does he revere God? Does he seek to glorify God? Does he honor God? Does he have zeal for God above all else? You see, if somebody fears God, he is willing to tell somebody no. He's willing to tell someone a hard answer because he fears God more than he fears people. And so it's important that he fears God. Not only that, we know from Scripture that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if you want wise leaders, you need somebody who fears the Lord. And so that's the first character qualification. The second is men who are trustworthy. This, is, this refers to men's relationship with other people. Do they say what they are going to do? If they tell you they're going to do something, do you know that they will follow through? Is there yes, yes, and there no, no? Or are you sitting there praying and hoping that they actually do what they said they were going to do? And the third is men who hate a bribe. This qualification reflects a man's relationship to money. Is there integrity in their working with money? Are they just out for greedy gain all the time? Or do they love the Lord more than they love the pleasures of this world? You know, competency and character are the qualifications for the judges of the Old Testament. They're also the qualifications for the elders of the New Testament. When you flip to 1 Timothy 3 and you look at the, the qualifications for elder, there are qualifications for competency and for character. The competency qualifications are the elders must be able to teach. They must be able to manage their own household well with dignity, because if they can't manage their own household, how could they possibly manage the church? There's also character qualifications. The elders must be able uh, to, the elders must be above reproach, a one woman man, sober minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money and well thought of by outsiders. Now, when we look at these qualifications, I think if we're honest, we know that no man except Jesus fits these qualifications. But what scripture is telling us is these are leaders whose life should be governed by these. Not that they are perfect in every way, but that they are men who are characterized by these things. Now, this is important for you to know the qualifications for elders. 
for one reason, because you have to elect them. But secondly, because you should aspire to them, especially the character qualities. You know, today is Father's Day. And we can take these three character qualities and ask ourselves the question, do we have these character qualities in our fatherhood? In 1987, at his father's funeral, American Olympian Carl Lewis placed his 100-meter gold medal on his, in his father's hands. He then looked at his mother, who was very surprised and very worried, and he said, don't worry, Mom, I'll get another. A year later, in the 100-meter final in the 1988 Games, Lewis was competing against Canadian world record holder Ben Johnson. Halfway through the race, Carl Lewis was five feet behind. But he thought to himself, I can catch up. I can do this. When they got to 80 meters, he was still five feet behind. And he realized, this isn't going to happen. I'm going to lose. And then it records in this book about the Olympics that Carl Lewis saw Ben Johnson cross the line with his finger in the air, looking back at Johnson. And as he looked back at Johnson, Johnson could see yellow-tinged eyes and his muscles bulging, which would be a sign of using steroids. And so even in his mind, he was thinking, this guy's cheating. But Johnson crossed the line, and he shook his hand. And in his mind, he thought, I can still give to my father by acting with class and dignity. See, Carl Lewis's father instilled something in him more important than winning. He installed in him the value of character. Dads, are you men of character? You know, John Wooden once said, sports doesn't build character, it reveals it. I think the same is true of fatherhood, isn't it? When the kids are screaming on the way to church, may have happened today, may not have. When the kids' legs don't work because it's bedtime. When they can run around the yard and do laps, but as soon as it's time to do chores, they're tired. See, fatherhood exposes character. And I think if we're all honest, we have plenty to grow in. And so we must look to God to strengthen us, to be men who fear God, who stand for what is right, to be men who are trustworthy, men that don't have to promise their children because what they say, they do. Look to God to be men of integrity, who aren't always trying to work the system to gain a buck. These are not only qualifications, the character qualifications for judges and elders, but they are qualifications that we should all seek by the grace of God. Let me end with this. Looking at Exodus 18, we see that Moses has a unique role. Moses is the representative between God and the people of God. Moses kind of acts like a king. I mean, the buck ends with Moses. He's kind of the final authority, final say. Not only does he kind of act like a king, he also kind of acts like a prophet. 
And that he speaks God's word to the people. We'll see that in the Ten Commandments. He will speak God's word to the people when he's done it in the past. God tells us to go here. God tells us to go there. And so he acts as a prophet. Not only does he act as a king and as a prophet, but he also acts as a priest, leading the people in the worship of God. And so he has this unique role as this singular representative between God and the people of God. And the question is, where does that exist in the church today? Is that unique individual representative supposed to be the Pope or the pastor? In our book of church order, which is as exciting as it sounds, there are three major parts. The first part is the form of government. How do we lay out the church government? The second part is rules of church discipline. When the wheels fall off, what are the game rules? And the third part is the directory of the worship of God. How are we to worship God as a people? And all of those are important things. But before those three parts comes the most important thing, which is the preface. And the preface to the book of church order has a section entitled, The King and Head of the Church. And I want to read you just a few excerpts from it. It says this, Jesus, the mediator, the sole priest, the sole prophet, the sole king, the sole savior is head of the church. He contains in himself by way of eminency all the offices in his church and as many of their names attributed to him in the scriptures. Jesus is apostle. He is teacher. He is pastor. He is minister. He is bishop. And he is the only lawgiver in Zion. It belongs to his majesty from his throne of glory to rule and teach the church through his word and through his spirit by the ministry of men. You see, we no longer need an earthbound prophet, priest, and king like Moses because we have a heavenly prophet, priest, and king in Jesus Christ. Jesus is our great king who rules over his church with righteousness and justice in love. Jesus is our prophet who speaks to us through his word by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is our priest, not only leading us in the worship of God, but being the atonement for us that we might worship God. He'd only provided the sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. He is the great high priest and he is the head of the church. And that is why we gather together every Sunday, not to worship the pastor. Pastors make horrible saviors. Not to worship the elders or the musicians, but to worship Jesus, who's head of the church. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much that you are over your church, that Christ is active in the church. Working through his word and through his spirit to govern the church. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be faithful, to be the people you have called us to be because we are your chosen people. We are your beloved people. We are your cherished people. And for that, we give great thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.